0: morning. I don't know about you, but I appreciate the songs that we sang about our continual trust in a Savior that is very faithful to us. Um, The last month or so, Pastor Andrew's been preaching through the book of Luke, and I was grateful that when we got to the point where Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, that Pastor Andrew slowed down. Um, and is spending some time there. And I'm grateful because the, the message focus, and if you haven't watched those or had a chance to to listen to those, you go back on Facebook or YouTube and uh, look at June 6, 13, and 20, and those things are all available. And there's a boatload of content there that you can benefit from and grow from. But I appreciate the reality of what he emphasized about how Christ and the temptation that he endured Proved who he was, that he really is the Son of God. And even more than that, it proved that he is everything I need him to be. He is the sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God with the ability to overcome the adversary that I face on a daily basis and whose passion and desire is to bring about destruction for my life and your life and for this world. And I was so grateful for that because I think a lot of times in our cultural concept of Christianity, we hear a lot of garbage that is passed off in the name of truth. Um, we, We often hear people talk about faith, as if it's like a a magic wand to wave over all of our problems and make them disappear. Like if I believe hard enough and intently enough that I can just wave a, a magic wand of faith over my disease and it will go away. Or I can wave a magic wand over my finances and instead of struggling like I am now, I'll be prosperous. Or I can wave the magic wand of faith over my relationships that have been broken, and somehow, magically, God is going to make all of those things just become whole instantly. And we hear a lot of that kind of teaching that presents faith as something that removes all of our problems and gives us an escape from all of the problems. When I believe that, that what we see in the book of Luke with Christ and what we see as God reveals the way that life really works, my wife is always watching out for me, when we see that the way God act, operated in Christ's life and in the life of the nation of Israel and in the life of our, ourselves, we see that faith isn't an escape mechanism. It isn't, it isn't just a way to erase all our problems and to, to make them go away. It's not a, an escape mechanism, it's a, an endurance mechanism that God has given to us to enable us to persevere and to endure through the difficulties that God chooses to put us through for our benefit, but also which our adversary wishes to use in order to bring about pain and destruction in our life. And, and really, our life, as Pastor Andrew talked about, is, it's really a, the center point of conflict between the good purposes of our God and the, the evil intent of our enemy. And so I'm very grateful that we've slowed down in a few of those messages to talk about some of those realities that, that life is going to come with difficulties and with challenges. And, and in my personal life, I have experienced some of those really deep seasons of struggle. And I know that the challenges are real. And I see other people go through struggles. And at times I see the destruction that comes into their life because they're not prepared for that. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk a little bit more about that. And in a way, you can turn your your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. In a way, I I told my son Joshua just last night, I said, I almost feel like... um, or I might, I'm concerned that I might be perceived kind of like Job's friends. Um, do you remember how that conversation went between Job's friends and Job? One of them got going and he basically told Job, Your problems are because you sinned and, and uh, you know, you just need to repent and you'll get over it. And life will turn wonderful. And then the next guy got up and said, You don't know what you're talking about. Job, your problem is your life is full of sin. If you just repented, you get over it. And then the third guy got up and said, none of you guys are making any sense, and you're not telling the truth. Job, here's the, what it boils down to. Your, your life is just full of sin, and if you just would repent, you'd get over it. And it's like the book just keeps going that way, and, and everybody just wants to, they think that they're going to be more persuasive telling a particular truth than the other guy. And, and you know, I don't want to be perceived that way because I'm talking about some of the things Pastor Andrew's been preaching on. Um, but because it is a passion for me, and I think that I can cover maybe some areas that, um, that I feel like we really want to lock in on. And we've got one more message coming, I believe, don't we, Pastor? Um, so I hope you won't think I'm trying to cover ground thinking that he hasn't covered them. We've covered a lot, a lot. But sometimes just packaging it in a way helps us refresh our minds. So turn with me to Luke 4 in chapter 1 and we're just going to read through this and then we're going to jump in and kind of cover a little bit of preliminary ground quickly. It says in Jesus full of the holy spirit returned from the jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, "If you are the son of god, command these stones to become bread." And Jesus answered him, And he took him to Jerusalem. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. So there's our, there's our context, and we're just going to look at this from a, perhaps um, and focus on a couple of things that, that I think are significant. But one of the things that we look at and we see, is, is there a way for that to show up on the back screen or no? Although I'll just look at the screen. Uh, I want to talk about some survival truths that I've had to, to bank on and, and go back in my mind, even in the past year, and pull it out and read through it in order to help myself through a season that was difficult. And uh, survival truths for extreme wilderness challenges. And the first reality that, that we've already covered, Pastor Andrew has, did, is that God has led me here. I'm not here by mistake. This is not an accident. God hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel. This season of my life is a place that God has led me to. We see that's the truth as it relates to the Israelites because in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, God says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or no. He goes on to talk about that wilderness experience and he describes it as a great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water that he might humble you and test you to do you good at the end. So God led the Israelites through this long, prolonged season of difficulty and that was his design. He was the one leading them by the pillar of a cloud during the day and by the pillar of fire at night. They weren't there by accident, It was also true of, of, of our Lord and our Savior. It says the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. And as we look at our own lives, God is the one who leads us. We're all familiar with, with David as he wrote the, the book of Psalms. And Psalm 23 is probably known by a lot of people who don't even know the good shepherd. But it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul But then it also goes on to say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of what? Of death, I won't be afraid. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, going through that valley in the shadow of death isn't an experience that we go through on our own. It's a place that God leads us through, and he's there present with us. And so that's, a, that's, a, that's a just an obvious core thing to keep in mind, that, that when we go through all of these experiences in our life, that it's not an accident. It's not something God's unaware of. It's not something he's unprepared for in order to help us. The second thing I, that I remind myself and have gone back through is that, that God hasn't stopped loving me. He didn't stop loving the Israelites when he led them through the, through the wilderness. That's not why he took them there. In fact, they, they often accuse God of that. When they experienced the moment when they stood at the, the brink of the Red Sea and they didn't think they had a way to escape, they thought they told Moses, why did you bring us here, to kill us in the wilderness because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? And of course God cared for them and parted the sea. And then they got to the other side after a great celebration and they experienced thirst. They had no thirst. Nothing to drink. And they said, why, why did God bring us here? To destroy us in the wilderness with thirst? He did, they said the same thing about the food and the fact that they had no food and they were hungry. Did God bring us here to destroy us? Then the whole question is, does God love us or doesn't he? And by my looking at my experiences, all of the indicators would suggest that he doesn't. But the reality is that God did love them, and he didn't lead them through the wilderness because he didn't love them. He was leading them to do them good in the end. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, God summarizes a reality as as a king, the king of Moab, wanted to bring in Balaam to curse the people, and God refused. And the reason God refuses, he says, because I love you, I love you. I'm not going to do you harm. That's not why I brought you here. And God defended his people. He treated them in Deuteronomy 8, 5, like a father would treat his child. And, and there was difficult moments and difficult things they would experience, but it wasn't because he was wrathful and angry and trying to destroy them. It was because he was nurturing them and training them and disciplining them and helping them to grow. The same thing was true of Jesus. Um, Jesus was the, the son that, we are, that Pastor Andrew made very, very clear. is Jesus was there baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. The, the, how do you say it? The, the heavens departed. The spirit came down. The voice spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus wasn't let out into the wilderness because God didn't love him. God's love was very much intact. And the same thing is true for me. You know, there is absolutely, I'm persuaded that nothing shall be able to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what Romans chapter 8 tells us? And then in Hebrews chapter 12, we're assured that God, just like with the Israelites as a father nurturing and caring for a son, God deals with us that way. And He hasn't stopped loving us when we go through difficult times, but He's with us, and His heart has not changed. This third thing I've had to remind myself and to make sure that I keep clear in my head is that, that wilderness experiences are places where I have an opportunity to learn. And the Israelites needed to learn. They were, they were presented with a situation where they were, they were play, put in places of hunger and thirst so that they would learn that they didn't live and survive by bread alone. They survived that experience by the very word of God. And it's not, as Pastor Andrew said, it's not just the word written here in this book. It is the ever-living, watchful care of a shepherd who loves us and manages the situations in our life that we cry out to and depend upon, who then speaks and who provides for our needs. And that's the continual existence and reality of what it means to be a follower of Christ is that when we face the difficulties that he leads us through, that we can cry out to him and we can say, God, I need your help. And we can come to the throne of grace and we can say in this moment, I don't know what to do. If we cry out for wisdom, he promises I'll give you the wisdom you need. We cry out for his help, and he's the ever-present one whose heart and compassion has not moved because he is actually on the throne with the purpose of ministering to us with compassion in our times of need. So the Israelites had things to learn, to depend upon the Lord. Interestingly enough, even our Lord, the Bible says, not Tim Cornish, but the Bible says, learned things through the things that he suffered. Our Lord, even though he was a son, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And that's, a, have you ever tried to figure out how in the world God in the flesh develops and grows? I mean, that's a mystery. And I don't believe that Jesus had to learn to obey because he was inclined to disobey. That's not the point. But the point is that Jesus, in living a life that can relate to us, Chose to go through life like we do, experiencing all the temptations and all the trials, and experiencing the the cost and experiencing what it's like to obey God at all times to the full. And he can say from experience, "I've done that." He can say from experience, "I have gone through that experience. I, have, I am fully qualified and I am fully equipped." to represent you before God as the mediator between God and man on your behalf. And he, in his struggles and his process of going through the wilderness, and not just through the wilderness temptation, but the remainder of his ministry here on this earth and his death and resurrection accomplished that. And then for me, there are seasons that are helpful for me to learn. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 65. It says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. What's the next word? Teach. Teach Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I think we could insert there, before I went through a season of a wilderness experience, before God led me through a valley that opened my eyes to things I needed to learn, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now... I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces." So we have an opportunity to learn. The same thing is true in James chapter One. If we go there real quick. James chapter one. something that we we're sometimes scratch our heads about, especially when if it's a wilderness experience that's intense, you read this and you scratch your head and you say, "How in the world can I count it all joy?" But he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, how many of you, like myself, feel incomplete? How many of you say, you know, I wish that God would just finish what he started? I came to him because I long, I hunger, and I thirst for righteousness. Is that why you came to him? You know, I I question why some people have come to him. Some people come to him because there's a promise that life will be easier in the future. And that's that's as far as it goes. Some people come to him because maybe they've heard somebody promise that he can give the magic wand to make your finances better, or he can give the magic wand to make your health problems go away, or he can give the magic wand to make your your relationships go well, and they've, they've embraced him on those premises. But what is it that he came to give? He says, I came to give righteousness, the gift of righteousness. I came to remove and deal with the issue at heart, which is our sin. And I look at my own heart and my own life and I feel like I'm incomplete. I know it's not going to stay that way forever. And I know that God has promised and what he promises, it will come true. He did that with Abraham, right? He told Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. And Abraham didn't even have Isaac yet. Because isn't it wonderful that God's God's promises are so powerful that he says them as if they're already completed before they're done because if God's going to say it and he wills, it, it will happen. That's why my hope is in him. He promises me eternal life and he promised me that one day I will stand before him without spot and without wrinkle and I will not have to look at my life for eternity with regret and condemnation and paranoia. But I can be free, free to live in the light of his presence and in his pleasure in eternal fellowship. That's why I came to him. Is that why you came to him? And the Bible tells us that when we are living in this life, that we ought to count it all joy when we're going through troubles because what it does is it gives us a, an increasing degree of what we long for that we are given a greater opportunity to experience the purging process where now I can walk today more faithfully and more free than I did yesterday if I'll embrace the struggle and I'll learn from it. And so there's an opportunity for you and for me that we can take this moment and say, God, I don't like where I'm at. I'm struggling with the moment this experience in my life is like a valley that's gloom and darkness but I know that you mean it for good I know that your rod and your staff are there to guide me, to comfort me and this isn't isn't going to last forever this isn't the destination in my life and so I'm grateful and I'm going to submit myself and I'm going to learn whatever you want to teach me that brings us to the next point, that this won't last forever. Life will get better. How many of you are always grateful for a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel? <laughs> Have you ever been in such a place that's so dark, you think the, the, the difficulty and the weight and the struggle will never end? It's just a daily pressure. It's a daily grind. It's a daily heartache. It's a daily season of just defeat and brokenness. And you long for it to just get lighter and to be free again. Well, it will get better. There is an end in sight. For the Israelites, their experience lasted for 40 years. And that's because they were slow learners. (laughs) Literally. And actually, I should say they were not just slow learners. They refused to learn. That generation refused to learn the lessons God was brooding them through the wilderness to teach them. They flunked out of the school of hard knocks, and they didn't learn the lessons they needed to. And so God waited for that generation to die out before the next generation would be brought in to the promises that he made. But but even then, that season for them was limited. We look at our Lord and his experience, and it lasted for how long? For 40 days, but it, it was a long season, and it was a difficult one, and he was hungry, and he was thirsty, and he was under the constant pressure of our adversary, but it did come to a what? It came to an end, and I can't imagine how refreshing it must have felt for our Lord to go from the wilderness to the Sea of Galilee, and to sit by the shore, and to experience the waves and the breeze, and to put his feet in the water. And they say, ah, oh. and they begin to do ministry in a place that was refreshing, at least in the physical sense. And then for us, in our experience, it is also temporary. In Psalm 23, it says, though I walk, th- what, through the valley of the shadow of death. Well, this is, that's, not our, that's not our destination. That's just a, a season of time that we will be walking through. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 says, Yet a little while, and he who comes will come. And the struggle and the, the season that we live in in this world, as we, we go through the difficulties that God leads us through and that our enemy is assaulting us in, that there is an end to that. And we have a hope that will that we'll take place. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 to 7, Paul talks about this light and momentary affliction. It works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And we can look at it in hindsight, knowing that God brought us through it and we came out the other side with what we long for, which is fellowship with him and purity of heart and the eternal riches that he's going to lavish on us that we don't deserve. What a blessing. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus encourages his followers to endure to the what? To the end. Not to the end of you. Not to the end of of your existence. To the end of the struggle. Until he finally gives us the rest that he promises. And then Psalm twenty-seven verses 13. In the King James, it says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know, you have to keep your mindset focused on the reality that your difficulty, your season of struggle is not going to be where it ends. That's not going to define the rest of your existence and your walk with God. He has far better things in store for you. I came across this verse and also something to go with it that cements it in my mind. But in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, Paul says this. He says, no temptation. And, and Pastor Andrew did a good job of emphasizing this in one of the previous messages that, that the word testing and temptation and trial and temptation are, are often interchanged because in those seasons of wilderness experiences, that's when our enemy often assaults us because he's like a roaring lion seeking to be made He's an opportunistic adversary. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But he says, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is what? He is faithful. And he will not, he will, what? He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a promise. He knows your limits. He's experienced what it means and feels like to be a human being and to, and to reach your physical limits and to reach the emotional limits and to just be totally fatigued. He understands it. He gets it. He gets it fully. Well, I came across this, um, this sign, and it, and it brought a little smile to my, my, my heart because it says, Never give up. Even if you got eaten, you still have at least two ways out. <laughs> I love that. I want to buy that sign. You can get it on Amazon. You know, sometimes, sometimes, do you ever feel like you're just devoured? We're going to look at the reality for the believer that we're never devoured. We're never going to be devoured by our adversary. He's looking for those who he can. But we have the promise of a God who has equipped us and, and enabled us to be able to overcome that by his strength. I, I, I look at this, and I, it reminded me of what Paul said in Philippians 3. As he's sitting in prison, he basically comes to the people, and he tells them, he says, I know that I'm going to be delivered out of prison one way or the other. I'm either going to be released from prison, and I'm going to be able to continue to do ministry to you, which is a good thing, or I'm going to, I'm going to end up being executed in prison, and i'm going to be with the lord. So, whichever way i get out of this, i'm okay with that. This is good. And you know, i don't know about you and for me, but you know what, in the midst of our trials, god is going to do one of two things. He's going to take us through them or he's going to take us to be with himself. And either way, we win. Either way we're delivered. Either way, we experience the victory that he accomplished over our adversary, who no longer has power to dominate and control and dictate our experience and our walk in this world. So that leads me with all of those realities that God is sovereign over what's going on in my life. It leads me to the basic premise that, you know, I, sh- I never, I can never stop trusting him. Because when we look at the the, the scope of what a wilderness experience is like, that's the bottom line at stake. Satan's agenda is not not just to deceive you into a sin. He is trying to destroy your faith and your confidence and your dependence and trust in the only one who can give you life. And if he can destroy that, then he's got you where he wants you. Turn with me to Hebrews 3, and let's just look at some of the encouragements, the challenges that are written here in the book of Hebrews to guide us in our thinking when it comes to what's at stake when we're going through these intense spiritual struggles in our life, and and they're dark times, and they're hurtful times, and they're, they're difficult, and the enemy comes in like an opportunist to make it even more difficult by assaulting our trust and our our belief in the God who loves us. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 says this, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold what? If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. See, continuing to embrace and trust the God who saved us is, is an indication of the reality of the faith that we have. See, the, the, the wilderness experiences that we've, as we've already learned in the passages that um, Pastor Andrew's taught, it reveals and it exposes what's really there. It, re, it brings to the surface the reality of whether our faith is genuine or not. So let's look at verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. It says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the Firm to the end. And that's what Satan would like to prevent. That's what he would like to insert his temptations and get you to do, as he said of Job, that if I just bring enough trouble into their life, and I just insert enough pain in their life, and I just create enough confusion in their life about how you're sovereign over this, then I can flip them from being a person who professes faith in you to being faithless, and they will curse you to your face. That's the, that's the vicious attempt of the adversary that we have. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we go over to chapter 6 and verse 11, we see the same theme brought over and over and over again. In the book of Hebrews, it says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope unto thee what? And to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, faith and endurance, inherit the promises. One of the true indicators of, of a true believer, an authentic believer, is that their faith will endure through the difficulties. And so that is essential for you and for I, to be able to, to hang on to that. Jesus told his disciples and those who followed him, he says, you are my disciples indeed if you keep my word if you hold fast to me that is how you will know that your faith is real that is how it will be defined and evident to yourself and to the world that you really are one of mine jesus talked a lot about people when they came to follow him he he sometimes presented difficulties in their way he didn't make it easy A rich man came to him one day, and he says, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, great, sell everything you have, and then follow me. And he's like, I can't do that, and he walked away. And Jesus' point with all of that is that, that you have to look at me as the one that you trust, even if you lose all your stuff. Because guess what our adversary may do to you? He may assault you in the realm of your stuff. And you you can't love that more than him because that is an essential area of trust that that can't be defined by whether I have a good income or a low income. That's why it's such a a tragedy for people to define faith and relationship with God as a magic wand that somehow makes your finances go wonderful. I love this little uh, image that has been circulated in many different forms that says never give what? Never give up. It so says there's this frog choking the, the, the egret that's trying to eat him. I kind of wonder who's being given the advice, the egret? <laughs> don't give up. You'll get him down eventually. Or the frog saying, no, don't, don't let go. Just hang in there. And squeeze that sucker to death. You know, I think the truth is a reality that we need to come to terms with, though, right? We have an adversary who's not giving up. He's not giving up. The season of trial in Jesus' life that he went through for 40 days, it ended. But it didn't end indefinitely. The Bible says that Satan left him for an opportune time. He waited until he thought he had another strategic moment where he could come in and create havoc. And so our adversary isn't given up. And so we can't give up. If he assaults our faith, then we've got to continue to trust in the God who we put our hope in and believe that his promises are true. And even if I don't see those promises in place and fulfilled yet, I know that if he said it, it's as good as done because who can stay his hand? And it's impossible for God to lie. He's the one who's promised me eternal life. Titus. My faith is under what? My faith is under fire. And so is yours. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I used to hear that verse when I was growing up, and I thought, that's—it just doesn't work in America. Because we have, right in the very First Amendment of the Constitution, that Congress shall make no laws prohibiting the free exercise of religion, right? It's like, I'm not being thrown in jail. I'm not being persecuted. And I thought, I just scratched my head. I was like, well, I guess that doesn't work for Americans too much. But then I began to understand that the reality of it is, is that it's not persecuted by a government. It's being persecuted by an adversary a spiritual adversary. It says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's, who is, that's who's oppressing us. As believers, that's who's attacking and assaulting us in the realm of our faith. That's who's trying to make our life difficult. So be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And his assaults in our life, as we see in the book of Job, don't come through political governments throwing us in jail. With Job, it it came through catastrophic removal of all of his finances and all of his wealth. It came through the destruction of relationships through a catastrophe where his children died. It came to the place where his own health was destroyed. And it came to the confusion and assault upon his reason to say if, if God blesses those who love him and obey him and are faithful to him, then why are you, why are you going through this? Explain that one. And we live in a, we live in a, a season and a world where, where we need to get deep into God's word because a lot of times we're dealing with principles that are like the ABCs or like, like addition and subtraction. When, when God is dealing with calculus problems, he's the one that's dealing with the, the issues of heaven and the issues on earth. And he's the one that's bringing all things eventually under his authority and control so that what is done on earth will be done as it is in heaven. And he's reconciling all things to himself, and he's the head over all things, and so we, we sometimes, as Job was going through, we say, I don't understand how this could be true and God could be loving in my life if this is happening to me. And we need to get deep into his word to be able to grasp the reality that God deals with very complex things and we may not understand it all the time. But we can trust what we do know is sufficient to get us through it. I say that because I keep coming across examples, sad examples of people who have gone through seasons of difficulty where Satan has assaulted their faith and they have turned away. I came across this, I was listening to an autobiography of Annie Besant, who lived in the 1800s to early 1900s. And she grew up being taken to church, she grew up reading her Bible, she grew up passionately praying every day. She grew up thinking and wishing with, with, with kind of like heroic aspirations that she someday could be a martyr for Christ. As a young woman, she ended up thinking that she would be able to serve God when a, when a minister proposed to her, and she thought and was advised, what other way could you serve God more than marrying a minister? And at the age of 20, she got married to this man, and then the wilderness began. Listen to what she wrote in her autobiography. Her child had gone through a long season of devastating illness. She sat for weeks, barely able to discern the child taking a breath, being able to survive. This is what she wrote. It was the long months of suffering through which I'd been passing with the seemingly purposeless torturing of my little one as a climax that struck the first stunning blow at my belief in God as a merciful father of men. I had been visiting the poor a good deal and had marked the patient suffering of their lives. My idolized mother had been defrauded by a lawyer she had trusted and was plunged into debt by his nonpayment of the sums that should have been passed through his hands to others. And my own bright life had been enshrouded by pain and rendered to me degraded by an intolerable sense of bondage. That's how she viewed her marriage. And here was my helpless, sinless babe, tortured for weeks and left frail and suffering. The smooth brightness of my previous life made all the disillusionment more startling. And the sudden plunge into conditions so new and so unfavorable dazed and stunned me. My religious past became the worst enemy of my suffering present. All my personal belief in Christ, all my intense faith in his constant direction of affairs, all my habit of continual prayer and of realization of his presence, all were against me now. The very height of my trust was the measure of shock. When the trust gave way, to me, he was no abstract idea, but a living reality. And all my heart rose up against this person in whom I believed and whose individual finger I saw in the baby's agony, my own misery, the breaking of my mother's proud heart under the load of debt and all the bitter suffering of the poor, the presence of pain and evil in the world made by a God, by a good God, the pain "'Falling on the innocent as on my seven-months-old babe, "'the pain begun here, reaching on into eternity unhealed, "'a sorrow-laden world, a lurid, hopeless hell, "'all these, while I still believed, drove me desperate, "'and instead of like the devils believing and trembling, "'I believed and hated. "'All the hitherto dormant and unsuspected strength "'of my nature rose up in rebellion.'" I did not yet dream of denial, but I would no longer kneel. She went on to become an atheist who wrote many pamphlets arguing against the teachings of the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he loves you, that he died for you. And then she graduated from that denial of any way to know if there's a deity, and if he did, it's not operative. To being a theosophist, was a whole other category of confused lies. Annie Besant, she went to her death rejecting the very thing that she once claimed to embrace. Same thing is true of someone I went to Bible college with, who served God, went to school, Professed faith from from the point of a child, was a model student, graduated from Spurgeon Baptist Bible College, went to seminary, pastored a church for like 15 years, and then because he came to questions he couldn't answer, he walked away and he turned his back on Christ and he's got a Facebook page dedicated to try to undermine the faith of others. Josh Harris, who was a very famous Christian author and pastor, wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, helped a lot of young people try to order their sexual lives in obedience to Christ, has turned his back on the very things he taught. And his final comments in the recent days has been this, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. I bring these examples up just to say that, you know, when we go through seasons of wilderness experiences, the assault on faith is real, and it will expose the reality of what's in our hearts, if our faith is authentic or genuine or not. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, because this is serious business. The stakes are too high, right? We're talking about eternity. For Annie Besant and for my friend John Malcolm and for Josh Harris, if you turn your back on the only sacrifice for sin, you have no plan B. He's it. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by him. If you he doesn't want to condemn people. He came to this world because he loves us. In John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be Save, but condemnation comes if we reject the offer that God provides, because it's all there is. And so the, the warning is very clear, and, and I just want to plead with anybody in this room. If, you, if you're not sure that you know Jesus Christ, that you truly believe him, thick or thin, that you believe him and you want him, not just for things that he's going to give you that are gonna bless your life here, but you're longing for the the transformation of your heart and the freedom from sin and the gift of righteousness, that I would encourage you to step back and take deep stock in your heart and make sure that you have done real business with him and that your trust in him is for what he offers you And not something else that's superficial and peripheral, but for the real deal of what he offers. Someone I recently listened to said, if Satan cannot rob you of heaven, which he cannot if you put your faith in Christ, he will make your journey there as hard as he can. I think that was Pastor Andrew Manwarn who said that. See, I was listening. I was listening. And that's the reality. So, in all circumstances, the Bible encourages us and challenges us that we need to take up the shield of faith, which, which you now here's the encouragement, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. God has equipped us. Satan is he's ruthless, and his assaults in our in our life can just be a barrage of assaults during those seasons, of trying to cast doubt on the goodness and the truthfulness of the Lord that we put our hope in. But you know what? If we know the truth of who He is and we really have embraced Him, then He has not left us without defense. He's given us what we need. We're told in the book of Ephesians that we are to to be fully equipped with the armor of God. And what is that armor? It's the helmet of what? Yes, yeah, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, and the belt of truth, and the feet shod with the good news of the gospel of peace. All of these things are representative of the reality that if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, he saved us. He's given us his righteousness. He's revealed to us the truth that has set us free, and he has equipped us with the knowledge that wherever we go, we have good news about what he's done to reconcile us to himself. And so we can go out fully protected of ourselves, but our our duty is not just to go out into the open, stand there, and be safe. Right? Is that what a soldier is equipped with armor to do? To go out in front of the enemy and say, No, 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 you can't touch me. I'm fully protected. Take your best shot. Is that what the enemy is that what a soldier does? What's a soldier's responsibility to do? It's to conquer. And to capture and to deliver people that are under the oppression of another ruthless ruler. That's what his soldiers to do. And so we go out and we have a sword with which we can do battle, spiritual battle, the, the word of God, to show other people the truth. Because once they know the truth, they will be set, set, be set free. But in that process, we have been given a shield, the shield of faith. And when Satan assaults us, we're protected But we need to make sure that we keep his promises in grip. And we need to help each other. Because when we go through those seasons, it's easy for us to forget. That's why when Pastor read that passage, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need to be there for each other. To help each other walk through those circumstances and say, keep your focus on Christ. Hang on to him. Run to him. Cling to him. Let's finish with this passage in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 8. It says, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Make sure that's not you. Make sure that you don't just profess faith in Christ, but that it's for real. He's seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your what? Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, it's not a political government. That's the issue, is it? It's it's not a party, a political party. Satan might use those things, but what it boils down to is it is the one behind all of that that is assaulting. And after you have suffered a little what? A little while. See, there's light at the end of the what? Light at the end of the tunnel. God hasn't forgotten me. He hasn't abandoned me. He still loves me. This is just the valley I've got to go what? Through. But after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself. What a what a promise. He's not going to delegate this to somebody else. He's going to be the shepherd. He's like, if other people don't deal with you and help you, I will, because that's who I am. I'm the good shepherd. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I love what it says next to him, to him be dominion forever and ever. I don't know about you, but I'm glad my life is not under the dominion and the control of my adversary who wants to do me nothing but harm. But I can put my trust in the new king who loves me, who's there for me. I can come to him at any time and find the strength I need. And when it's said and done, he'll make it all good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are such a good God. I probably haven't covered anything new today, but we, Lord, I I need it. There have been seasons when I had to bank my whole, my whole heart on these truths. And so, Lord, I pray that if people are here maybe this morning that are going through a deep season of, of wilderness struggle, in whatever form it's taken, I pray that you would give them the confidence to hang on to you, to run to you for, for deliverance and help, to sustain their faith through it all. And I thank you that we look forward to the day when all things will be made new. We pray this in Christ's name because he deserves all the glory and we know that this is what you've revealed and it is in full alignment with what you're pleased to do. We pray in Christ's name, amen.